I'm hoping that you have already discerned that the title of this session is tongue-in-cheek. This is not an instruction from my heart to yours <laughs> that you abstain from questioning statist and compulsory authority. Um, but there is a point in the irony of that, of that title that I think hopefully will unfold. So our topic this morning, probably obviously, is authority. And I thought of it certainly yesterday. We really already got started on this when we got into uh, the question of the word that people hate the most. Um, we talked about the word cult and how people are terrified of that, and, and it really is an authority question. Um, and the thing about authority, and I think we said this yesterday, is that no one likes it. Authority has to do with the will of another being imposed in one way or another onto another being. And when we are the other being, there's something about us that we would like to be in charge. We would like to be God. We would like to be our own source of authority. So any kind of authority that comes to us and says, let's do it my way instead of your way, there is something in our nature that conflicts with that notion. So, but we hope to examine uh, some of the, the elements of that today to understand it better and to understand some differentiations in types of authority. Now, it is pretty commonly acknowledged that no society can survive without some type of ordering which involves some type of authority structure. Um, so even though no one likes it, no one likes to get stopped by the traffic cop, um, and yet most people, at least until recently, were not seriously suggesting that we do away with the police. Because while no one likes authority directed against themselves, they would like to make sure that everyone else, you know, all those other people need something to help them stay in line. It's only me that doesn't need any help with that. But we don't want to get rid of it entirely because of what all those other people would do, right? So people acknowledge that there's got to be some type of structure of authority. We just don't like it. Um, there is, of course, the recurring myth of egalitarianism. Well, we can just all be exactly the same. There can just be a perfect society in which no one has authority over anybody else. There's no ordering at all, and we're all exactly the same, and, and everybody will, that way everybody can be happy. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that um, I think it was Orwell who said, uh, you know, when everybody is equal, the problem is, is that some people are always more equal than others. <laughs> Somebody's got to, to make sure that everyone else is being equal, and who is that somebody? You know, so there's always some contradiction with that approach. C.S. Lewis, in describing his own journey towards becoming a believer, uh, once said, he said, you know, I, I, liked, I liked clergymen as I liked bears, but I had as little desire to be in a church as to be in a zoo. <laughs> and he went on to say, uh, I wrote it down here, but he said, he said, uh, but of course, 
What mattered most of all, he's describing his, the condition of his life before he came to know the Lord, but of course what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. I thought that was a pretty good description of the nature that is within us in the flesh. But as Bob Dylan would put it, you got to serve somebody. As Paul would say it, you're either going to be a slave to sin leading to death or you're going to be a slave to obedience leading to righteousness. But we're going to serve somebody. After all, the Christian faith is based upon the statement, Jesus is Lord. Lord in, in Greek is, means master, the one that has all authority. We say it's central to our faith, and yet in the days in which we live, people are terrified. We, we heard a question about it yesterday. People are terrified of any church group that seems to exert some kind of authority. And therefore... Most churches, I would say, I think that may be fair, are terrified to exert authority because they don't want to drive people away and, and we've got to, you know, we've got to try to accommodate this fact that people are scared of that. So you can suggest things, you can put on a good show, but you can't disciple people to obey all things that Jesus has commanded. You certainly don't exhort and rebuke with all authority, as Paul commanded Titus, and leaders and fathers are, are more and more ashamed of the authority that the Lord has given for the building up. So, um, question authority, our, our slogan today comes from a character named Edward Abbey. He was a, an interesting fellow who, uh, in the 60s and 70s, he coined this phrase, and it was so um, simplistic and so appealed to that thing inside of each one of us that it really caught on and became kind of a bumper sticker kind of thing. Edward Abbey was full of contradictions. That's the most interesting picture that I've got in the whole deal. I've just got to tell you that right now. <laughs> but there he is. That's his, his convertible. He was full of contradictions, Edward. He... He was supposedly a hyper-environmentalist, he, and he worked for the U.S. Forest Service, and he used to poach deer all the time in Utah and Arizona. He claimed that he despised cattle ranching, but he loved hamburgers. He would just rail against people ruining the environment, but he would drive this huge convertible uh, through, the, uh, through the deserts, throwing out beer cans as he went. He preached devotion and loyalty to causes, but he had trouble remaining faithful to his no less than five wives. He called American evangelicalism a mental illness, 
and he generally despised religion because it claimed to have some kind of moral authority and he was against authority of, of any kind. The problem, of course, with his slogan is that it was uh, very simple-minded and uh, perhaps that's the appeal and such things, uh, but it makes no distinction in what kind of authority are we questioning. It seems to at least assume that one should not question one's own authority. I don't think that's what it meant. Be sure to always question your own authority to question authority. I don't think that was implied. Um, but it sure resonated with the culture. And um, we've seen that unfold all around us. James Hitchcock is a professor of history at St. Louis University, and he claims that the essence of modernity is the refusal to accept any standard of truth outside of oneself. Gene Twenge uh, is a sociologist who has written a number of books recently, and um, one is called Generation Me, the other is called The Narcissism Epidemic. She's got a new one, newer one called iGen about technology, but she's studied what's happening to the generations that are coming forth now, and she uh, has did the, what is, I believe, the largest cross-generational sociological study that's ever been done, trying to understand what is happening to people. And she says that this proliferation of narcissism is, directly correlates to a diminishment of a certain kind of relational familial authority. So she says these are the messages that are being said and projected in so many ways to today's youth. You'll probably recognize some of them. You can be anything you want to be. There is no single right way to live. Each person should think for himself or herself. You should rebel against restrictive social mores. Do whatever makes you happy. Above all, never just do what an adult asks. Instead, always ask why. Have you ever heard any of that before? This is the world that we live in. Um, from the top to the bottom, here, here was a quote from our sitting vice president. This was, uh, she was speaking to school children last year, and she said to the kids, you know, one of the most important pieces of advice that I can offer you guys, and I want you to really remember this, never let anybody tell you who you are. You tell them who you are. Never let anybody suggest to you that you are what they think you should be. You tell them who you are and who you know that you are and what you intend to be. Got that? You have to wonder what her response would have been if one of those kids would have had the wherewithal to answer her and say, well, according to your advice, we should not listen to a word that you say. <laughs> because you're trying to tell us what kind of people we should be. So everywhere this message is reinforced, question authority, question authority, but we've got to make distinctions between two types of authority. And I put these up here nice and big because this distinction is incredibly important in any question of authority. There are two basic types of authority. There is impersonal and coercive authority, and there is relational, non-coercive authority. It's the difference between a mom and an IRS agent, okay? Both are gonna exercise some kind of influence in your life, but one 
is backed by a certain kind of coercive authority and it is impersonal to you the, and institutional. The other has a non-coercive authority, but it's a moral authority that is based on a relationship that you have that has expectations. Now, in a Christian worldview, these two types of authority are seen biblically and historically in the antitypes of Caesar versus Christ. Now, we've already been over some of this, so I'm going to move fairly quickly through this next section, comparing, contrasting these two types of authority. So we see the same categories that we just had for Caesar and Christ. Now, I want to point out, before I go on to say other inflammatory things, that uh, the point here is not, uh, my point is not that we should resist Caesar's authority categorically. Okay, the Bible is very clear, the New Testament is very clear with us that we are submit to the governing authorities, and specifically to Caesar, that the Lord has allowed for this. Now, we would uh, believe that the only authority that is ultimately validated will be the non-coercive authority of self-sacrificing love, the authority of the Lamb, of the Lord Jesus. But coercive authority is in the world, and it is for a reason. It is a result of the rebellion at the fall that brought death and sin into the world. So because of lapsed human nature, that authority does have a legitimate place in maintaining order in the world. So Christians are called to respect it and obey it, so long as it does not require them to disobey God, which is always a higher authority for Christians. But coercive authority does not have any legitimate place within the kingdom of God within the church, within uh, the relational aspects of our lives, this type of coercive, impersonal authority does not have any place. Okay, so let's go through Caesar's authority a little more here. It's empowered by violence. Christ's authority is empowered by self-sacrifice. Caesar's authority motivates submission through the threat of death. That's ultimately what's behind it when that cop pulls you over He's wearing that thing on his hip for a reason. But Christ's authority motivates submission through the promise of life. Caesar's authority works through fear to force external conformity. He's not likely to change your heart. Christ's authority works through love to inspire internal transformation. Now, we've already talked about this, but Caesar's authority and this description is probably already reminding you of somebody else's authority that works in the same way. So we'll substitute a different name for Caesar. Satan's authority, well, that one looks like it got messed up. I warned you. Satan's authority is the power of death and reigns through fear. Christ is the opposite. Satan's authority, Christ's authority, Satan's authority, sorry. So Ben, your program has corrupted my beautiful graphics can't believe it. It didn't look like this before I gave it to him. I'll blame it on him. Okay, so in the Bible, we hear that Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Job calls him the king of terror. Hebrews 2 says he has the power of death. The devil has the power of death. He holds people in bondage through the fear of death. Okay, so he's portrayed in scripture as a dragon. He was embodied in a cunning serpent. Christ is portrayed as a lamb and was embodied as a helpless baby. Satan's authority is covert, dishonest, manipulative, and deceitful. He appeals 
to our pride. In fact, he is monarch over the children of pride. Um, So we see him saying, you will not surely die, so on and so forth. Christ's authority is overt. It's honest. It's straightforward and transparent, and it appeals to truth. Don't eat of that tree or you're going to die. See, I set before you life and death. Choose life. He's straightforward with us. Satan's authority is corporately incarnated in the kingdoms of this world. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. Jesus called him the ruler of this world twice. John, uh, Paul calls him the God of this world. The devil himself, when he took Jesus up for the temptation, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he said, all this authority I will give to you, and their glory for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. This was a real temptation. It was not a, a bluff. Christ's authority is corporately incarnated in the spirit-led church body. Satan's authority is expressed on earth through impersonal agents, abstract institutions, propaganda machines. Christ's authority is expressed on earth through personal relationships, through fatherhood, and anointed ministries of truth. So we can hopefully see from this kind of blunt contraposition why Satan's, why this coercive, impersonal authority has no place in the church. But there is authority. Christ does have authority. I think one of the, the common, uh, how shall I call it, um, delusions, maybe is the best word, is that, okay, so what we're saying is there doesn't really need to be authority in the church because all it is is love. No, it's the authority of love. So let's take a closer look at what relational authority looks like. Here's a definition of relational authority. The right and power to command obedience in the context of responsible freedom. The power to command is different than the power to coerce or enforce. So we are commissioned to teach them to obey all things that I have commanded. So... Who give, what gives the right? Does might make right? Is, are we talking about an appeal to raw power? No, we're talking about a moral authority that's based in the word of God and that has been proven true by the resurrection, that love is the final authority. Hannah Arendt gives another definition that I think is good. Authority is the ability to elicit voluntary obedience. Now, this moral authority to elicit voluntary obedience due to internal conviction, presents the greatest challenge to the other type of authority, to coercive, totalitarian type of authority. Now, I want to share with you a few things that will help us understand that. This man, Samuel Oliner, was a Jewish man. Um, He was 10 years old when his entire family was murdered by the Nazis in Europe. Samuel survived because he was hidden by a Christian Polish woman. And he determined in his later life to understand why it was that a few people were willing to risk their lives to rescue the Jews when so many others were not. What was different about these people and what had shaped them into the kind of people 
that would be willing to risk their lives. So he, did a, he and his wife Pearl did a study that was released in 1988 called The Altruistic Personality. They interviewed, I think, like 700 people, a lot of people who had rescued Jews and people who had chosen not to rescue Jews, and they tried to understand what is the difference. What was it that made people do this? These people that rescued Jews, Richard John Newhouse gives a description of these people that I, that I like. That's, he says, these people had been told that what was happening, meaning the Holocaust and all this purges and so forth, what was happening was not their responsibility. That an entirely new situation demanded anguishing decisions that could no longer be avoided. That scientific and historical necessity required a rethinking of familiar values, that traditional views had to give way to the inexorable course of progress, that short-term sacrifices of customary ways was the price of long-term advancement, and that in any event, people wiser than themselves had thought these things through with great care. And who were they to challenge the experts and those in authority? All this they were told, and all this they refused to believe. They refused to surrender their knowledge of moral agency. Why? So the distinguishing attributes that the O-liners identified were that the people who rescued Jews had an unquenchable sense of personal moral agency. They had conviction that they were willing to die for, as Brother Abraham mentioned to us the other day. Where did they get this? Well, they discovered that typically these rescuers all had strong ties to communities that espoused rather straightforward and unsophisticated understandings of right and wrong. They had been raised and taught in a context of relational authority. They had been part of communities and families that reinforced in them that there is a right and there is a wrong this is a moral question. In other words, relational authority expressed in their lives gave them the power to resist coercive totalitarian authority. To put it in Jesus' terms, you cannot cast out the strong man unless the stronger man comes into the picture. Is it possible that relational authority based in love and moral relationships is the stronger power able to resist this power of brute force and the threat of death? Is it possible that love casts out all fear? Most of you are probably familiar with the example of the community at Le Chambon, and I'm sure I said that wrong because it's French and I can't say anything right in French. But this little village in France was known as the safest place in Europe for Jews during the war. They were of the Huguenot tradition, and they believed in nonviolence. They, they would never take this coercive authority to try to compel another person through force and fear into their own hands, and yet they rescued thousands of Jewish children and was considered, uh, it was considered a miracle. I won't go into the story because I think most of you know it. 
So uh, I want to re- put a few quotes here from a man named Charles Burgess. He's a professor at the University of Washington. And he makes the point that totalitarian states do not grow in their power by opposing individuals. They grow in their power by opposing voluntary societies, communities, families, churches, the things that reinforce those convictions that cause them to lose power. So he says the rise of the totalitarian state in the 20th century hinged upon discrediting and crippling all other levels of community loyalty, from family to voluntary associations. Why? Because the state has to destroy competing sources of loyalty. So he says the common notion of the individual versus the state is dangerously wrongheaded. In reality, the course of the state is to reduce every member to the level of an individual, to remove from the individual the support found in other communities of loyalty, and thus render each separated person helpless and dependent. So the great triumph of the state comes with the atomization of individuals, with no dependable alternative communities of loyalty in a psychological vacuum which the state fills as the new and final enclosure of human life and purpose. Thank you, Jesus. Individualism is a tyrant's best friend. The Milgram experiment. This was done in the 1960s by a man, at, a professor at Yale named uh, Stanley Milgram. And the motivation of this was they were trying to, to discover what was it that made people conform to the Nazi dogma that was in the recent past. Even when the things that were happening in the Holocaust were against the moral standards of a lot of the people who ended up participating in that tragedy. So he did an experiment. He put out a notice. Here's the notice. You probably can't read all of that. But he put out a notice and solicited people from all walks of life, big cross-section of folks to come, and uh, he, he billed the study as a study of memory. And he wanted people to come and uh, oops, this didn't do what it, you said it would do, Brother Ben. I pushed the, the eraser and it gave me a menu of eight things. Oh, did you do that for me? I just realized nobody was listening to me. You were all trying to read that thing. (laughs) So there. (laughs) Brother Liot asked if that was coercive authority. (laughs) You look at me. Got that? (laughs) Okay. So he sent out this notice. He calls for all these people. We're going to do this memory experiment. And he he brings them in. You can turn it back on, Ben. I'll just go to the next one. There we go. I don't know how to get rid of that thing now. There we go. Okay. There, you can look at that while you listen to me. (laughs) And he called these people in. Um... And the way he set it up was kind of ingenious. Uh, 
people would come in once they had signed up and registered and whatnot. Uh, they would come in in pairs. And he would, only really it wasn't a pair. One of them was prearranged, but the other one, who was the real subject of the experiment, didn't know that. And so he would bring them in in pairs, and he would tell them both, you know, one of you is going to be um, the, the teacher, and the other one is going to be the learner, and we're going to draw cards to decide which one of you is going to be which. And he would, they, he would let the one who was the real subject pick first, and he would pick the card that said that he was the teacher. Actually, both cards said teacher on them, so there was no way that this guy was not going to pick anything else. But the other guy was in on the, the deal, and so he understood. And so when he drew his card that said teacher, he said that it said learner. And the other guy never saw it. And so they go into this thing, and they set up the teacher in front of this machine that you see in this picture. And they set up the learner in another room, and they hook up electric diodes to him. And the learner is actually a trained actor. He's in on the experiment. And so the, the guy who's the teacher is told, we're going to give, give a memory test. And we're going we're to ask the learner questions. Um, and every time he gets a wrong answer, we want you to push one of the buttons on this machine. It's going to give him an electric shock. We're going to try to see if we can help him to remember things better. So this machine has this row of buttons on it. It's got this range of electric shocks on it. And it starts with, I don't know what the first one was, but it's like 15 volts or something. It's super mild. And these buttons go all the way up until the ones at the end have this label underneath them, you know, danger, uh, lethal, uh, you know, lethal voltage. It goes all the way up to 450 volts. Okay? And so every time there's a wrong answer, he goes up a level on the shock machine. Okay, his only function is to sit there and push the buttons. So the other guy is asking questions. This is done in the elegant interaction laboratory at Yale University with scientists in white coats and so forth, supervising the whole thing. So, um, before Milgram actually performed this study, he polled a bunch of people who were supposed to be experts in human psychology to see what they thought were going to be the results of this. Like, how far is this guy going to go? You know, is he going to go all the way up 100 volts, 200 volts, 300 volts? Okay, because the, the actor is going to start acting like he's not actually getting shocks. I forgot to tell you that part. That's sort of important. He's not actually being shocked, but the, the teacher who is the real subject of the experiment, thinks that he's being shocked, and the actor is portraying what it looks like when somebody's receiving this type of electric shock. Okay? So how far is this guy going to go just because the guy in the white coat tells him to? Okay? So he, he polled his students um, who were psychology majors, and they thought that anywhere from 0 to 3% of the people in the experiment would give the maximum shock to somebody. So then he reached out to his peers and he, he polled scores of professional psychiatrists and, and so forth, and they thought that only 4% of people would give a shock above 300 volts, because everybody knows. That's enough to kill somebody. And they thought only one-tenth of one percent would be willing to actually push that last button. So what actually happened? What were the results? Who do you think was willing to go above 300 volts? 
Every single person. 65% of them, two out of three, went all the way up to the maximum shock. Some people would, are you sure this is all right? But with the assurances of the scientist and the expert and everything, it's, it's fine. It's a controlled experiment. They'd keep going until the, the actor is limp and lifeless in his chair. Everybody was a little surprised, actually, at what it actually came out. Milgram, you know, he, this, this study was repeated in various places with different factors, all with very similar results all over the world. And he said that the most important factors were the fact that it was a scientist, that he was accredited, that it was taking place at a major university, that the whole thing was being conducted in the open, in a civilized city, in the middle of a civilized culture, and so you can trust me. The mystique of science. Milgram made some observations that are very helpful as to the question of why is it that people in civilized society today are so susceptible to bending to this type of authority? There's Mr. Milgram. He pointed out that while structures of authority are of necessity present in all societies, advanced or primitive, modern society has the added characteristic of teaching individuals to respond to impersonal authorities. He said that in the past, people would have personally known the sources of authority in their lives, but the modern industrial world forces individuals to submit to impersonal authorities so that responses are made to abstract rank indicated by insignia, uniform, or title. Now, Milgram pointed out that this begins early in our Society, willing subservience to impersonal institution begins as soon as the child emerges from the cocoon of the family and is then transferred to an institutional system of authority called the school. Interestingly, he noted that in the various types of, of um, variations of the experiment that they did, the most effective way of getting the subject of the experiment to actually resist the malevolent authority of the, the scientist in the white coat was to put other people in the room who resisted. If there was somebody else there saying, this isn't right, then, then people would say, yeah, this isn't right. Miller, Milgram says, the mutual support provided by men for each other is the strongest bulwark we have against the excesses of authority. But now let's explore this a little bit further. Is the point that we just need peer pressure? We just need other people? As long as we have other people around, we'll do the right thing, right? <laughs> no. Let's talk about one more test here. The ASH test. This is Solomon Ash. This was done in the 1950s to measure the power of specifically implicit peer pressure. Solomon Ash found that peer pressure alone does not suffice to help one resist evil. 
it requires exactly what the O-liners found. It requires a particular form of interaction, explicit relational authority. Strangers may influence you towards the bad, but they're not likely to influence you to stand by your convictions. Okay, so he did an experiment, and it was similar in the sense that um, the people who were the real subjects of the experiment thought that everybody else in the room was also a subject of the experiment. So he would bring, I don't remember now how many people, but he'd be 20 people or something into a room, and he would tell them that this is a vision test. We're going to test your eyesight. And they would put things like this up on, on the screen, and he would ask everybody things like, the line there on the left, which line on the right does it is, is the same length. And he would go through several of these things, and, and the, the other people in the room had been told ahead of time which answers to get, but the one person that was the subject of the experiment did not know that. He thought everybody was, was deciding, you know, was, was being tested for their vision, including himself. And so everybody would give the right answers for a few, and then they'd hit one like this, and everybody in the room They'd see this and they'd say, well, which, what's the right answer? And everybody would answer out loud and, and everybody would say, well, line A, obviously. And the test was to see what will this one guy do when everybody else says that line, this line matches to line A or line B. You guys can see that it matches to line B, right? <laughs> <laughs> what is this guy going to do? Is he going to say wait a minute, <laughs> that's not right. Or is he going to go along? Well, how many people do you think went along? 75% <clears throat> of people, three out of four, were willing to at least once give a wrong answer just because it conformed with what everybody else said. Now, they also found that if just one other person in the room would give the right answer while everyone else was giving the wrong answer, it dramatically lowered the percentage of people who would go along with the wrong answer. So again, we need each other. Interestingly, and this is important, I think, interestingly, <clears throat> I think I lost something here. I'll go ahead. The power of manipulation depends upon the illusion of autonomy. So the interesting thing was that if people were explicitly told by others in the room, you need to pick line A, against the judgment of your own eyes, they would resist it. But when it was simply implied, and the person was sure they were deciding for themselves, they really weren't, they would conform. Does that make sense? And so, um, whoops. And most people, 
when they were questioned afterwards, why did you choose the wrong line? Didn't you just choose it because everybody else did? Would vehemently deny it. Oh no, that had nothing to do with my choice. I decided that that's, those people didn't influence me at all. But it only worked if it was implicit. In other words, it only worked if, it was, if the illusion of autonomy could be maintained. In that condition, people are the most easily manipulated. Impersonal authority, in, it allows the individual to maintain the illusion of autonomy. So all this emphasis of individual rights is a manipulation. It's slate of hand to cause us to not realize who's really in charge. Personal authority tends to puncture our balloon, our illusion of autonomy, by being straightforward and direct. It presents a challenge to the idea that we are autonomous. The Pharisees wanted to keep God as an abstraction. As long as he was up in heaven and far enough removed from personal relationship, they could, you know, they could, they could say that they were submitting to God, but really they were doing what they wanted and they liked it that way. When Jesus came and made God's authority personal and direct, it became unavoidable. That was not appreciated. We've pointed back in this conference many times to the Garden of Eden, but we're going to have to do it again one more time here. Can't we say that this is exactly the conflict that was going on in the Garden of Eden? It was a conflict between two types of authority. One was explicit, personal, and relational, based in love. The other worked through the promise of autonomy, through flattery, through peer pressure. Come on, Adam. I ate it. You can eat it too. It worked through deception. And what was the deception? Well, the lie was, your father is a selfish, jealous authoritarian. That was the lie. And his authority in your life is not for your good. And for that matter, your husband isn't trustworthy either. It's been pointed out before that the serpent pulls Eve aside and he says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? But Eve wasn't created when God said that. Only Adam was created. So it seems that Adam would have been the one that had shared with Eve, this is what the Lord told me. So it's also questioning, did your husband get it right? And the lie is, you can be your own authority, and somebody mentioned it just the other day. Satan doesn't come and say, come on, eat of the tree, and I'll be your God. He comes and says, eat of the tree, and you can be your own God. But who's really God when we think that we're God? So, we could say that a recipe for the triumph of malevolent authority in the world is to, number one, destroy voluntary social cooperatives. That means churches. That means families, communities. Number two, foster individualism and the illusion of autonomy. Here we have personal entitlement, individual rights, 
anymore. We're supposed to have the right to self-determination. You can pick which pronouns you would like to be used in addressing you. You can change. You can be anything you want to be. You do whatever makes you happy. Isn't this the world that we live in? So are believers subject to the illusion of autonomy? Aren't you glad that none of this has ever infiltrated the church? (laughs) You remember in John 8, it says that Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. That's a stupendous statement. I mean, even historically, that doesn't seem real accurate. (laughs) But they've got a certain sense of who we are, you know. How can you say you will be made free? We're already free. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So I think the devil's slate of hand has distracted us, even in the church at large, from the real problem and inclined us towards a strong delusion so that we have, as we said before, mixed up all kinds of the definitions, even of our biblical language, to where things don't mean what they used to mean. And we'll go through these fast because uh, we already have done some of them and you'll get the idea. These confusions and false equations even infiltrate the church. You believe in absolute truth? You're judging me. Right? Well, no, that doesn't have to be the case. People have made this false equation that absolutes equals forcing. They've mixed up the two kinds of authority. You can believe in absolute truth even when you believe in absolute nonviolence, as the Anabaptists have proven to us. We can believe that truth is absolute even when our understanding of it is certainly not. Our relationship with God is the absolute. How about this one? Obedience equals legalism. This is again a failure to understand that there are two types of authority. It's a failure to understand that love can have an authority. If a wife wants to please her husband, does that mean the only motive for that is because he's an authoritarian, she's afraid he's going to can that, is that the only motive? Is that the only thing that can make somebody want to obey? Or this one. Submission equals irresponsible servility. You're just turning over your responsibility to somebody else. Well, which type of authority are we talking about? Because there could be truth to that. But which type of authority are we talking about? There was an American visitor to Germany right before World War II, and when he saw what was happening there, he expressed concern to a German citizen that people were sacrificing their freedom. And I'll quote you the answer that the guy gave him. He said, oh, you don't understand at all. Before this, we had to worry. We had responsibilities, but now we don't have any of that. Now we're free. Okay, so there's a sense in which turning over responsibility to the wrong kind of authority is indeed irresponsible. But this, the freedom in God, is a freedom to become responsible 
I know we could talk for a long time about these. I'm just asserting some things here, that, but I don't have much more time. <clears throat> Liberty equals independence. Liberty in Christ means ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. So that's like Brother Blair has given the example before. It's like, you know, I don't want to be part of the body, so we, we cut the finger off from the body. It's free. You're now free from the body. But what have you gained from your independence? Are you really free to be what God made you to be? Are you really free to have the life of God flowing to you? Or has your independence cost you something? Jesus said, you've got to abide in the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Proverbs 18, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. So, or how about this one? Freedom equals incontinence. <laughs> Freedom is supposed to mean I can give rein, I can do whatever I want to do. Is that what freedom in Christ means? Somebody already quoted the other day, Galatians 5 and 13. You brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I freely lay it down. What are we free to do? We are free to become responsible in relationship before God and one another. We are free to sacrifice our lives as a voluntary act. Or these, love equals unconditional approval. We went over that the other day. Again, that's a false dichotomy that love and authority can never go together. Or that one, discipline equals hatred. We already talked about that one. Okay, we'll turn that off. There, I coerced you again. I'll just share a couple more things with you. If you were the devil and you wanted to gain control over people that had a free will, how would you do it? Would you tell them, I'm a brutal tyrant? I'm going to kill you and take you to hell? Would you do it that way? No, you wouldn't. You would do two things. You would paint the face of the lamb on the dragon. He's here to help you. And you would paint the face of the dragon on the lamb. He's here to hurt you. <clears throat> We've got to face the fact that in our carnal nature, we want to confuse the two types of authority. We want to believe that this impersonal authority that allows us the illusion of autonomy is lamb-like, is for our good. And we want to believe that this personal authority that confronts our autonomy is going to hurt and is wrong and is bad and is authoritarian and so forth. Brother Howard summed up the point of my message in a couple of sentences yesterday when we talked briefly about authority. But what protects us from abuses of authority and authoritarianism and all this kind of thing. Number one, let's keep this distinction in mind. What kind of authority are we really talking about? But at the core of our choice for freedom has to be an understanding that the tyrant we should fear the most is the one that lives right here.
Who is going to deliver us from that? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? There is no agency, no coercive authority that is going to deal with that. There has to be another kind of love that can cast out that demon. So the purpose of God's authority is to deliver us from our body of death and into life. John 17, Jesus opens his prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. For you have given him authority over all flesh so that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. Amen. That's the purpose and goal of God's authority in our lives. It's life. It's to bring us to life. We need his power to reign in our lives to help us cast the real tyrant off of the throne that we can live as Jesus, with Jesus as Lord. And Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. So, in closing, let me say that I don't think the greatest danger in our times is that voluntary social units will become too authoritarian. The greatest danger is that the authority rooted in love, would perish from the earth. So when we look at the days ahead, what should our concern be? I think our chief concern would be with Paul that men will be lovers of themselves, disobedient to parents, traitors, headstrong, covenant breakers, having a form of godliness but denying its power over our sin. Our concern should be with Peter, that people would walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, that they would be presumptuous, self-willed, and not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Our concern should be with Jesus, that a man's enemies will be those of his own household, that wives will no longer respect their husbands, children will no longer honor their parents, that children would even betray their parents unto death, that many will be offended and will betray one another, and that the love of most will grow cold. Our concern would be with Jude, that people would reject authority and perish as they did in Korah's rebellion. Our concern would be with Paul, that they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will turn their ears away from the truth. Our concern should be with the writer of Hebrews that people would completely forget the word of encouragement that addresses them as a father addresses his son and therefore despise the discipline of the Lord and lose heart when he corrects them. Our concern would be with Jeremiah that people would only follow the dictates of their own evil hearts or with Solomon that people would separate themselves because they seek their own desires. Our concern would be with Paul that the eye would say to the hand, I don't need you. Our concern would be, again, with the writer of Hebrews, that 
People would no longer obey those that have the rule over them, but will make it a grief and not a joy for those who would give an account for their souls. Our concern would be with Paul that church leaders will be ashamed of the authority the Lord has given for the building up of the church, that they would no longer speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, that those leaders will instead glory in their unwillingness to sever sin from the church. And again with Jude, that, people, that, that such people would turn the grace of God into a license for sin. Our concern would be with Peter that they would promise people liberty while they themselves are enslaved to corruption. Our concern would be that no one would any longer have the courage to actually make disciples and teach them to obey all things that he has commanded. Thank you, Jesus. I want to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is our only hope of overcoming the tyrant that reigns on the throne to overcoming the illusion of autonomy.